0: If you will turn to John chapter 18 in your Bibles, John chapter 18, as we continue our series, meet your maker through the gospel of John, we're closing in on the conclusion of that series. We have timed it so that we hit the resurrection portion at uh, Easter time, which is coming up on April the, the 12th today, John chapter 18, one who writes a biography is supposed to provide an accurate picture of of the life of the one about whom they're writing. And yet, too often the biographer leaves out the less pleasant side of his subject. The result of that is a distorted picture in which the individual is made to look better than he or she really is. Anybody ever experienced that? You read a biography and you come away going, were they really that good? This happens with Christian biographies all the time. Instead of biography, you could call it hagiography. The Greek word hagios means saint, and we make saints out of everybody without showing very often their foibles and their weaknesses. In this regard, one preacher talked about his admiration for the famous Confederate General Stonewall Jackson. Because Jackson was not only a general, but he was an outstanding Christian who believed firmly in the sovereignty of God. He believed that God was in control of every aspect of his life. And so Jackson once said, my religious belief is as safe in battle as it is resting in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. Well, this no doubt helps explain why Jackson was the great general that he was. The preacher read a biography of Jackson, and he says this. When I finished reading, I can still remember the sense of hopelessness that I had in ever being able to copy such a courageous Christian as Jackson was. When I finished reading, I felt that, well, Stonewall Jackson is a step or two above anything that I could ever hope to be. And too often, biographies make saints of their subjects, and thereby they lack a sense of authenticity. If we're honest, we know better. We know from experience and more importantly, we know from the word of God that everyone sins, that everyone fails, that the real story is not entirely good and positive and heroic. One of the many indications that the Bible came to us from God is that it portrays its heroes accurately. It portrays its heroes with all of their warts. All of the positive side, but all of the negative side as well. Now, to be sure, the Bible has a hero with a capital H who has no blemishes on his record. That's the central figure of the story, Jesus Christ. But those who wrote about him also wrote about themselves. And their portrayal of both him and themselves has this ring of authenticity because they're presented These people who wrote as regular people, people who struggle, people who sin, people who fall. And because they were honest about themselves, they're giving us an honest portrayal of this one who is very much unlike themselves. In just a bit, we're going to look at John 18. And we're going to see one such vignette, one such accurate picture that the Bible gives us from the life of Peter. The events that are recorded in John 18 take place the night before Jesus will be crucified. And the details of that night go all the way back to chapter 13, where Jesus met with his first followers in a rented upper room. And he did that to prepare them for what was about to transpire the next day. And in the midst of Jesus teaching them, in what we call the Last Supper, Jesus announced to them that he was going to be departing. So would you indulge me to just turn back a few pages to John 13? Hold your finger in John 18, but John 13. And in verse 33, here's what Jesus says. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered. Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. In John 18, now, just a few hours after Peter's confident assertion that he'd be willing to die for the Lord, we find the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. The ugly portrait of Peter that's painted in these verses serves as a warning to us to be ever aware of our own moral frailty. That frailty is seen against the backdrop of Jesus' moral rectitude in the face of great danger as Jesus is arrested and he knows that he's going to be killed. So important is this drama of what I call in the title of the message you see on your outline. Courage and cowardice and compassion. It's so important that all four of the books we call the Gospels in your New Testament Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all of them record it. Now that's important because there aren't that many things that all four of them record. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the signs that Jesus performed that are recorded in all four. But most are found in one or two, a few in three, very few. Events in the life of Jesus and his apostles are in all four. And here's why it's so vitally important. Self-confidence is fatal to spiritual growth. Pride in our own abilities is fatal to our growth in grace. Peter displayed this pride and self-confidence Time and again. And Jesus taught him and teaches us an extremely valuable lesson. God knows our tendencies. And he wants us to be aware of those tendencies as well. So that we can avoid their consequences. And that's why the Bible famously warns. Let him who thinks he stands take heed. That he does not fall. This morning from John 18, we're going to see what I tell you in the take home truth that's in your outline. I encourage you to take a look at it. The grace of God is absolutely essential if we are to persevere in him, stand for him. Let's begin reading at verse 12 of John 18. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, as we saw last week in verses 1 through 11, Jesus was confronted in the Garden of Gethsemane by a large group of Roman soldiers and members of the temple police. And they were aided in that by the betrayer, Judas. And they take Jesus first to a man named Annas. Verse 12 tells us. Now, who is he? Annas was the most powerful figure in the Jewish religious hierarchy. He had been high priest until about 18 years before this encounter with Jesus. He had been removed from the office of high priest by Valerius Gratus, That's Pontius Pilate's predecessor as the Roman governor of Judea. But he was still called, as we'll see, high priest. Much like we call former presidents still President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, even after they're out of office. And he was still an extremely important figure in Jewish religious life. Many of the Jews had not accepted his removal by the Roman governor those years before. They saw it as the Roman government meddling in their affairs. And besides that, the Old Testament law said the high priest had life tenure in addition to that, after his removal, five of his sons and one grandson served as high priest. And now at this time serving as high priest is none other than his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So Annas was really the patriarch, the power behind the throne. And that's why the New Testament places the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist during it, quote from Luke three two during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, as though they jointly held the office. Annas was proud and ambitious. He was a notoriously greedy man. And he had it in, especially for Jesus. You see, a significant portion of Annas income came from concessions sold at the temple. People had to bring their animals to the temple to be inspected before they could be used in the sacrificial rite. If the animal was rejected, the worshiper would have to buy an animal from the temple at an exorbitant price. Well, as you might have guessed, it's amazing how many times animals were rejected. And then the temple salesman would say, but we've got one here for you. And this is how much you'll have to pay for it. And so, sure enough, theirs would be rejected very often. And they'd have to buy a temple model. And Annas also profited from the fees the money changers charged to exchange foreign currency into the Jewish money, which alone could be used to pay the temple tax. So infamous was Annas's greed that the outer courts of the temple where all of these transactions would take place, came to be known as the Bazaar of Annas. Well, you can see why he had it in for Jesus, can't you? Jesus had twice disrupted his business operations by cleansing the temple. We saw it in John chapter 2 once. It happened again as recorded in Matthew 21. And this is the man before whom Jesus is brought. A man who hates Jesus and has already plotted his death. And that's why John mentions Caiaphas in verse 14 as being Annas' son-in-law and the one who had suggested back in chapter 11 that Jesus be killed. So Annas and his son-in-law are going to engage now in a mock trial. The verdict of which they have already determined. And Jesus knows all of this. The exchange between Jesus and Annas begins in verse 19. The high priest, referring to Annas, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Well, that alone was illegal. And Jesus knew that. Rather than bringing charges against the Lord and producing evidence to substantiate those charges, as needed to be the case in any legal proceeding, Annas is trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And just as our Fifth Amendment protects U.S. citizens from self-incrimination, Jewish law protected the accused from being forced to testify against himself. It was Annas' responsibility to inform Jesus of the charges against him. Instead, he asked these vague general questions. He's hoping to uncover a crime to justify the death sentence that he's already decided upon. And Jesus knew the Jewish law, of course. And that's why he said in verse 20. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So Jesus, knowing the law, turns it back on the high priest. And in effect is accusing him of this illegal act. And now embarrassed by his boss's loss of face. Verse 22 says, one of the officials nearby struck him, Jesus, in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. And throughout, Jesus remains calm, but but resolute. Verse 23. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Now, to hit a prisoner, especially one who's not even been accused of a crime, was illegal. And Jesus confronts this further illegal act with unassailable logic. He says, if I'm wrong, that the proper legal procedure is for you to call and interrogate witnesses, then correct me from the law rather than illegally hitting me. If I'm right, then what justification do you have for what you just did? And it's interesting that Anna says nothing further. He realizes he's going to get nowhere with Jesus. And so verse 24 says, then Anna sent him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Let's just stop and consider. We're going to look at Peter in just a bit, but let's just stop and consider what allowed Jesus to show courage in the face of what he knew to be a kangaroo court and he knew would result in his execution. It was not that Jesus was immune from the dread of the excruciating pain he was going to experience. You may recall that he asked the father to let this cup pass from him if possible. But Jesus said something else to the father. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Jesus cared More about the will of God than anything else. Than anything else. Because of his reverence for the Father and his will, any obstacle to that will must, in the mind of Jesus, be overcome. If it meant being abandoned by nearly everyone, including his own followers, at least temporarily, the truth is they all fled initially after Jesus' arrest. If it means abandonment, your will be done. If it means injustice will be perpetrated against me, your will be done. If it means I will not be popular with and lauded by men, your will be done. You see, friends, as I say in the outline, we see from the example of Jesus that we're courageous when we revere God more than man. And if we're honest with ourselves, very often we revere man more than God. And we see that sad example in the life of Peter. John has purposely put together this narrative true to the facts, but he has As you read through these verses, 12 through 27, he alternately goes from Jesus being questioned to what Peter is doing. And what John is doing is he's juxtaposing, he's contrasting how Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. While Peter cowers before his questioners and he denies everything. Notice verse 15 of John 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. Now, what's going on here? Jesus has been taken from the garden. He's been arrested and the eleven have all initially fled. They're scared. That includes Peter and this other disciple. But then Peter and this other disciple, who we'll identify in a moment, come to their senses. They regain their composure and they go to where Jesus is at Annas' residence, as we'll see. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is this other disciple. I won't take the time to bore you with it, but John often refers to himself as just the disciple that Jesus loved or another disciple. Disciple. And so when he refers here to Peter and another disciple going to where Jesus is, it's Peter and John. They are going to the residence of Annas. And the second part of verse 15 says that John, then, this other disciple, was known to the high priest. How is it that John is known to Annas? After all, we know John. We know John's resume a bit, don't we? He was a fisherman. When we think of a fisherman, we think of a common laborer, but we need to understand that in the first century, fishermen were not all just common laborers. Many were entrepreneurs. As a matter of fact, his father, Zebedee, ran a, an enterprise, a business enterprise. Mark chapter one, verses 19 and 20 tell us that Zebedee's business, his fishing business, required that he have hired hands to help him with the fishing business. Further. Because of who John's mother is and her relation to Mary, it's very possible that John was of priestly descent. The early church historian Eusebius says, in fact, that some believe that John was at one time a priest. So whatever the occasion, because he was from a prominent family, because he was from a priestly family or both, John was known to the high priest Annas. He knew it was dangerous for him, but nonetheless, he knew his way around and he went. He took Peter with him. But notice what the passage tells us. First part of verse 16, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest, John, came back. Last part of verse 16, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. Now, the fact that there's a girl on duty at this door tells you that it's not at the temple. Because girls were not allowed to man the door. This is at the residence of the high priest, Annas. And she allows him to come in. But then she asks him this question. Verse 17. You are not one of his disciples. Are you? And it's asked in such a way that it. Expects a negative answer. She probably knows John. She knows that John is one of his Jesus disciples. And so she asks him. But she surely expects him to deny it. Knowing the tension that's going on in the circumstance. And he takes the bait. And Peter answers in verse 17. I am not. I am not one of his disciples. Disciples, the first of the three denials that Jesus predicted back in chapter 13 has now occurred. And where then does Peter find himself? He wants to get away. He doesn't want any more questions. And so he goes into the courtyard area. And verse 18 tells us this. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. All kinds of imagery going on here. But where does Peter's denial of the Lord lead him immediately? He's standing in the company of those who deny the Lord. He's with the world. He's warming at the fire of the world. And it tells us as well that this happened at night. Because they're warming themselves. It's cold. And so this kangaroo court has convened very quickly in order to move in the direction they've already determined at night. And Peter has given his first denial of the Lord. Now, what has happened to Peter? What has caused Peter to descend to these depths? Well, friends, we can learn a number of things about Peter's failure here. One is this, that spiritual leaders are not exempt From failing their Lord. Peter had his name changed by Jesus. Do you remember Jesus called him a rock? Peter was the leader of the apostles upon whom the church would be founded. Peter was the one who rose on the day of Pentecost and preached with power on that day when the church was first born. It was Peter who flung the door open to the gospel for the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Spiritual leaders, pastors, deacons, ministry coordinators are not exempt from failing their Lord. Further, the spiritually privileged are not exempt from failing their Lord. Peter, like the other followers of Jesus, had walked with Jesus for three years. Privileged. Can you imagine hearing... From Jesus' own lips, the servant, Sermon on the Mount as it was delivered. Can you imagine the very night our Lord laid aside his outer garment, girded himself in a towel, and he washed Peter's feet as an act and an illustration of service. Peter is one who is absolutely privileged. and More than that, the Lord called the twelve. But among the twelve, he singled out a small circle of three men, Peter, James, and John as in effect His inner circle. They were included in some very private and spectacular events. And so picture the three stepping into a small room with the Lord Jesus where a 12-year-old girl lay cold in death. She was the daughter of a man named Jairus. And Peter watched as the Lord Jesus stepped forward, took her by her cold blue hand, and said, daughter, arise. And life came into that lifeless body. And Peter knew that the one whom he followed was like no one else. And later that would be confirmed when Peter and James and John were privileged in Matthew chapter 17 to, on a mount, see Jesus transfigured before them. And they beheld him in his glory. Here's a privileged man. And he denied the Lord. Spiritual leaders are not exempt. The privileged are not exempt. The courageous are not exempt. I mean, you've got to give Peter his due. We like to talk about Peter's problems, and he certainly had plenty of them. He always seemed to be putting his foot in his mouth, but he was a man of courage. He did follow when the other nine have fled. Peter followed into the courtyard of the high priest, the courtyard of the high priest. At this moment with Jesus and these men had all the warmth of an armed camp. One author said that the tremendous thing about Peter was that his failure was the failure that could only have happened to a man of superlative courage. It's true that Peter failed, but he failed in a situation which none of the other disciples even dared to face. He failed not because he was a coward, but rather because he was a brave man. But even in the face of this difficulty, this brave man committed some momentary cowardly acts. Now, hear this, friends. If great men fall, what makes you and me think we will be any different? The implication of the fact that no one is exempt from the danger of denying Christ, of failing Christ, is that you and I must be on our guard. Take heed when you stand. Take heed lest you fall. And so this is the situation that Peter finds himself in. Denying the Lord for the first time. A man who is a spiritual leader. A man who is privileged. A man who has shown great courage. None of us are exempt. But I have good news. And this passage hints at that good news in verses 25 and 27. We are capable only by the grace of God. Notice verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? Now, this is the same question that the girl at the door asked. Now he's warming himself at the fire and somebody else asked it, and asked the same question in the same way, written in such a way as to expect a negative answer. And this courageous, privileged spiritual leader says in verse twenty five, I am not. In verse twenty six, one of the high priest's servants. A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Now, just stop there. What are the chances of that? You all know what he's talking about? In verses 1 through 11 last week, in verse 11, it tells us that scene in the garden where Jesus is confronted by these Roman soldiers and Judas and the temple uh, police. Peter is there. And when they tried to take Jesus Peter takes his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And this man's name is given as Malchus. And so now here we are at Anna's house, just outside his residence, warming at the fire. And a flicker of fire must have illuminated the face of Peter. And one of them says, hey, aren't you one of them? And this guy's a relative of Malchus. Well, whatever you want to get out of that, get this. None of this is happening by accident. Jesus has predicted what will happen. And Jesus is giving Peter the very circumstances for it to happen. For Peter to see. For Peter to see his true character. Jesus is doing a favor to Peter. He's preparing Peter to see that self confidence is fatal to spiritual growth. And Peter will need that lesson burned into his mind and heart if he is going to carry out the work to which the Lord has called him. Verse 27 says, Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. At that moment. The Bible tells us in the gospel accounts. I told you all four deal with it. The Bible tells us in the other gospel accounts that two other things happened at that moment. One was Jesus caught a glimpse of Peter from inside the residence. He catches a glimpse of Peter. And Peter catches his master's eye. And at that very moment, when Jesus' prediction came true, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. Jesus and Peter locked eyes. And the Bible tells us as well that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Jesus has orchestrated all of these circumstances to show Peter his true denial apart from his attachment to the vine and apart from the grace alone with which he can carry out the work to which he's been called, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. Now, what can we learn out of all of this? One, we said last week that Judas went out and wept bitterly. Do you all remember that? Judas, after he betrayed the Lord, ultimately takes his own life. But Judas was not one of Jesus' followers. Judas went to his own place. Judas regretted what he did. But regret is not repentance. Peter has regret. He has sorrow, but he also has repentance. And he has this repentance only because he is a true disciple of the Lord. Regret is not repentance. Peter demonstrates both as we will see further denial failure is not the same as apostasy what's that apostasy means you have utterly denied the lord you have turned your back on the lord you are, are apostasizing means you have fallen away from the faith you've denied the truth peter failed But it was a momentary failure. It was not an indication of his full character. Denial, failure, and apostasy are not the same thing. Apart from the grace of God, Jesus is showing Peter, you will fail. And friends, apart from the grace of God, apart from the vine to whom we must constantly be attached and upon whom we must constantly be dependent, every last one of us. Would fail. Did you know that? That's why Jesus said to Peter, as I told you a couple weeks ago, it was to Peter. He said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. But here's the crucial thing. I, Jesus, have prayed for you, Peter. Peter would ultimately make it. But not because of Peter. Because of Jesus. And that's what he was showing Peter, and that's what he shows us. We are capable only by the grace of God. And I have one last piece of marvelous news for you it is that grace of God who will restore the one who fails. That same grace of God restored Peter. Take a look at John chapter 21. Just turn over a few pages. To John chapter 21. Many of you are familiar with this scene. In John chapter 21. At the close of the gospel of John. Verse 15. When they had finished eating. Jesus said to Simon Peter. Simon son of John. Do you truly love me more than these? More than these what? It's these fish that they're frying up. Do you love me more than stuff? And he says, Peter does middle of verse 15. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Again, verse 16. Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, why does Jesus ask him three times? Do you love me? How many times did Peter deny him? And I love what Cyril of Alexandria, Christian in the fourth century, said About this passage in John 21, where Jesus in his grace restores the one who has fallen. Cyril says this, if anyone asks what cause he asked Simon only, though the other disciples were present. And what he means by feed my lambs and the like, we answer that Peter with the other disciples had been already chosen to the apostleship. But because meanwhile, Peter had fallen for under great fear, he had three times denied the Lord. He now Jesus now heals him that was sick and hear this, and he exacts a threefold confession in place of his triple denial, contrasting the former with the latter and compensating the fault with the correction. That's the mercy and grace of our Lord. Who will receive us when not if we fail and friends. Here's when we fail, when we believe that we can accomplish anything apart from the vine, the one on whom we are completely dependent. Now, what should you and I do with this? We should identify in our lives those things that become more important to us, that we revere more than God, those people, those things. That would move us away from the Lord and from his work. And call those things what the Bible calls them. They are idols. They have become more important to us than God. What about Peter in that moment? Popularity. Safety became more important to him than his God. Popularity. Teenager. Peer pressure, right? Right. Money, adult. Fill in the blank for your chosen idol. Anything that removes you from the safety and attachment, vital attachment to the vine, puts you in a dangerous position to fail your Lord. Here's what else we should take from it. When, not if, we fail the Lord. We can go to him and if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is the God of the second chance and the third chance and the tenth and the thirtieth. Thanks be to God. We serve a God of grace who receives us and restores us. Let's bow before that God. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into the pages of your word and this portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ, who with courage, because he prioritized the will of his father over all things, over safety, over popularity. He was willing to withstand the onslaught of injustice and violence that would be brought against him. And we see in contrast to that, Peter. Peter, who is like me. Peter, who is like us, a man with feet of clay, a man, though he was a leader and though he were privileged and though he had shown many flashes of great courage. Peter failed. Peter sinned against his Lord. Lord, we thank you for this picture and for this reminder. And Lord, it's a convicting reminder of what I am, what we are like. We are like Peter. And in comparison to the brilliance of your moral rectitude, Lord, who can stand? None of us. But Lord, we're thankful as well for this picture, this portrait of your grace in the life of Peter. The same gracious hand is extended to us as you have brought us out of the world and to yourself in salvation. And as you continue to work in our lives, as we are branches attached to the, the vital life-giving vine. You grow us. You do your work through us. You prune us. You make us better for the fight. You did this in the life of Peter. We see it in what he was able to accomplish in the years thereafter. Thank you, Lord, that you're involved in our lives. Weak and frail though we are. Help us to be people who understand, Lord God, that we only stand by your grace. And apart from your grace, every one of us falls. And so help us to remain close to the Savior, close to his word, close to his people, close to the heart of God and the things that matter to our God, lest we fail. Go with us, Lord, as we seek to serve you and we seek to grow in you. And help us to do so the only way that it can possibly occur by the grace that you extend to us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.